0: Please pray with me. <clears throat> oh God, we pray you meet us this morning um, in your word, just as you met us in the waters of baptism. May your spirit come upon us, or wherever we find ourselves this morning, visiting as a guest or regular members, whether we have um, a faith for many years, perhaps a faith we've lost, we'd like to recover, or perhaps no faith at all. Help us, Lord, to know that you are the God that is always moving towards us however we find ourselves even before we know it. And so we pray you meet us by the grace of your word and the power and the love of your spirit this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Some of you are thinking two genealogies in a six-month period. I preached a genealogy of Luke about six months ago. And uh, note that I did ellipse uh, a big part of the names that uh, Katie had read. We have um, been in the midst of a sermon series called Something Beautiful for God, a a, a Christian understanding of human sexuality, and we've been looking at... the cre- part 1, in a sense, creation, and we've been in Genesis 1 and 2, reflecting on the meaning of marriage and relationships, um, what it means to be a person, created in God's image, to be sexual beings and creatures, and this sermon is the last sermon of that first part. And we're going to take a bit of a break for Advent, and we'll pick back up in um, an Epiphany and Lent, but it's an appropriate conclusion to this uh, first section of the sermon series. Last week I looked at, uh, we we explored this idea of covenant, the meaning of covenant. And one word where it says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That the essence of marriage we discussed last week is covenant. It is promise-making and promise-keeping. That's what the essence of a marriage is. And it also happens to be the beginning of the family. That a family starts and has its beginning in creation when a man and a woman make covenantal vows to one another in marriage. That's the beginning of a family. A family does not start when you have kids. A lot of times I hear people say, well, we're thinking about having a family, married couple. You already are a family. You made vows to one another. You are a family. See, it's possible to have children and not have a family. But a family has promise. It's not simply procreation, it's promise. And that's what I want us to explore this morning. Really, the one idea that I want you to sort of grab hold of, and it's everywhere in the text that we heard read, is this, is that God saves the world through families. It's a pretty radical thing to think about. God saves the world through families. That family is God's chief and primary means by which He is redeeming the world. And so I want us to reflect on three aspects of the family that we we learn the priority of family, the particularity of family, and the pattern of family. So the priority, the particularity, and the pattern. Now, I want to draw your attention back. In a sense, we need to go back to Genesis before we jump into um, Matthew chapter 1. The priority of family is, by, is, is because it's part of the created order itself. It's part of the structure of creation. Remember that God, the very last act that God does in creation is he creates marriage. He creates family, really. We've been really focusing on the marriage side of things, but... Family is part of creation. When we make the vows, right, as husband and wife, we create a family. And children are the natural manifestation of the communion of husband and wife. They're the personal communion of a husband and wife. And you think about it, how incredible it is that our children are sort of a blend of our flesh and blood. They have our facial features. They have some of our problems as well, right? It's an incredible symbol Not just a symbol, a reality of the love between spouses. And so family is part of the structure of creation. It's there from the very beginning. It's it's not a construct. It's not something that we just make up and then say we call it family. And really one other aspect of family that's very important to understand is this idea that that the the family is the, 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 um, the fulfillment of an urge as image bearers of God. That God says in the beginning, in Genesis 1, chapter uh, verse 28, says, God, it says, God blessed them, God blessed them, and said, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. That to be image bearers, whether you're married or not, <laughs> is to be those created with a deep desire to uh, create life, to multiply, to fill, to be fruitful in your life, and and now that fruitfulness can look like a lot of different things. It doesn't always look like children. However, it is never less. That's always the way that the Scripture understands fruitfulness and bounty and blessing. And that blessing in life is always densest, and it's always most rich and filled around new life. I mean, why... So many of you came here today to visit and to support Anthony and Jess? and Tom and Heather, and Josiah and Miriam. Why? Because you love those kids, right? <laughs> you, because there's so much blessing in life around new life. And that's how God created it. And I think the, interest, the important thing to see here, and this is part of the, create, the, the priority, is that God, the family, is an organizing reality in creation. The family is an organizing reality in creation. Even though there's no children that come into the world before the fall, still the family becomes, after the fall, the primary way in which reality is understood, how history is tracked in the Bible. I want to draw your attention to one um, text. that's very important. It's not in your bulletin, but there's Bibles if you want to take and look. But it's chapter 5 of Genesis. And it's the very first genealogy that you find in the Bible. It's the very first genealogy. And starting in verse uh, 1, it says this. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, we heard this already in our Gospel of Matthew, the generations before Jesus. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he created him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and his name was Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam were 930 years. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. And Seth lived, and it keeps going and going, and you have this long genealogy, right? You see, right there in chapter 5, from the very beginning, we're already getting a genealogy. And we have family, right? That when the Bible thinks about history, when it thinks about the flow of history, it happens through the family. That to be image bearers, again, we're image bearers created in God's image as male and female. And that from that union comes human civilization itself. And one of the things I've been telling all of you, and I'll remind you, is that it is marriage, right? That is the foundation of human civilization and culture. That from the covenant promises we make and the children that come from us and all the culture that surrounds our lives and the lives of our children comes civilization and culture itself. It's a pretty incredible thing. And so the Bible is always narrating history through the family. It's always, there's tons and tons. If you've read the Bible, you know, you hit these books that half of them are genealogies. And it seems incredible. You're like, whoa, why so many genealogies? It's because the family is an organizing reality for life. And I think there's a couple practical consequences that, that we can draw from this. And the first one is this. Your family is the single most formative and influential thing in your life. Period. Period. There's, there, there will be no more influential power in your life than your immediate family, mother and father, siblings. Now, that's not to say there's not other influences later in life, but because when you are a child, you are, so poor, you are so vulnerable and open and impressionable that you are formed, and you are formed in ways, and you as parents, we as parents are forming our children in ways that we can't even comprehend, just by their presence in us. In our, in our lives. Friends, even if, you have re- even if you don't have a family, even in a, if you've rejected your family, or they've rejected you, even if you hate so much about what your parents are, even your attempt to sort of disassociate yourself from your family, you're still defining yourself over against them. You follow that? Sometimes we define ourselves by what we're against, right? And so often, when you go out of life and you have broken family, and you say, I'm never going to be like my dad, in so many ways, you're you're saying, I'm not going to be what he is. And it's still a defining influence in your life. And again, I'm not saying that family is, is ultimate destiny and fate. We are free creatures. And it's not to say that you can be the perfect parents and your kids don't turn out in ways that defy explanation. And yet, family is the fundamental, most formative place. That's how God rigged it. That's how it's meant to be, because as, as people, we are, we are we're porous people. We're and I use this language of porous, like, you know, I, I I think of this as the pig pen principle. You know the peanuts character, pig pen. Right? He's the dirty little boy. I mean it sounds really bad. He's the boy that always has a dust cloud around him and flies, right? And actually I, I read a science uh, there, science has shown that actually this really exists, that we all have a sort of dust cloud of of different sort of bacteria. It's kind of gross when you think about it. Um, but we all have an atmosphere, in other words. We all have a, a kind of a biosphere of scent and particles. And, you know, Pigpen sort of illustrates this. But, but this is true not just of our, our lives sort of in a biological, physiological sense, but it's true of your life in a spiritual, moral sense, that all of you have a moral atmosphere. All of you have a, a spiritual atmosphere, and, and you're, you're, you, you communicate yourselves not simply in the words or actions, but you, by your very presence. It's how you say the words or how your actions are. There's, there's an atmosphere, right? And our children, just, they just absorb it. They just suck it up. And that's a kind of a scary thing to think about, right? Because they sometimes will absorb up our cynicism as parents. They'll absorb up our sort of harshness. But they can also absorb up our joy, our hope, our longings. See, see as parents, it's actually a lot harder to, to, to have Christian kids. It's actually a lot more difficult than simply doing Bible studies with them. It's actually really important to do that. It's, you, you actually have to, your whole life has to be oriented towards God. You have to give them your very love, right? And, and, and that's why I said that the most important thing you can give for your kids is your own love for God, your own holiness. That's the greatest gift you can give them. It's the greatest gift that we can give to any of us, our spouses, our friends. So, family has an incredibly powerful formative effect. And as parents, it is our responsibility to raise our children as Christians. You cannot outsource it. We are here as a church to help you. We will support you. We will walk along the way. And in fact, you can't do it without the church. And yet, you can't outsource it to the church. And you can't outsource it to a Christian school. You, parents, you have responsibility to train your children in the way of the Lord. Okay, so that's one practical consequence of the priority of the family in creation is its powerful influence in our lives. But the other one is this, and I'll be very brief about this, but but family and the family unit is the fundamental building block of all human society and culture. The family is a building block, and again, all you have to do is go back and look at the, the way that Israel's organized, right? It's organized in terms of tribes, right? The, the 12 tribes who were 12 sons, who had 12 families, and then they had families. And so there's tribes, and there's clans, and there's families. That's how society is organized in ancient culture, in ancient Israel. And in our culture, a lot of law and legal, you know, kind of you look at, there's, there's very much... Um, still as part of our legal system uh, an understanding of the centrality of the family and yet more and more sort of modern liberal democracy and I use that as a, a broad phrase to describe what it means to be you know live in a Western world politically is more and more oriented towards people not as families but as individuals. More and more, our culture, whether it's popular culture or legal governmental culture, is oriented to us not as family units but as individuals, isolated, autonomous, self-determining, isolated individuals. And the more family breaks down in society, the more, in a sense, the state needs to step in and start playing the role that the family used to role- play. I mean, that's and so. But the health of any culture in any society is based on families. It needs healthy families, not just healthy individuals. Because at the end of the day, individuals are not transmitters of culture. And this is not meant to be offensive to those who are single, because there's a way that you can be single and not just be an individual. <laughs> you can belong to a family. You can belong to something bigger than yourself. But individuals do not, are not transmitters of culture. Only families are transmitters of culture. And that's why the family has such a huge significance in society in general and why we're so invested in it, but the church especially. Okay, so this background a little bit of the reality of creation helps us to move towards this genealogy of Jesus. And while it's not in Matthew's genealogy, and when you look at the genealogy of Luke, what you see is that it actually goes all the way back to Adam. Luke traces the genealogy all the way past Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Now, one of the things you get when you read these genealogies is just how particular they are. And this is the second point. The particularity of the family. So when you're reading the genealogies, I mean, I don't know how many of you started tuning out after like the third or second name when, when Katie was reading. I sometimes do that. It's hard to pay attention, right? Especially I read when, from Luke passed in the spring, it was 77 names on the genealogy. It's hard for us to make sense and comprehend why these are important, and why are they? They're just so specific and they're so particular. But here's the thing: it's a list of actual, real (laughs) people—people who have really lived, real historical people. And I think oftentimes we think we have no sense of who these—who is Perez or is you know these different characters. And yet, I think the deeper truth is this about genealogies. And it really actually gets us to the very heart of the meaning of Advent and Christmas. And it's this it's that God is the kind of God that does not work outside of history, like hovering above it and just pulling people out. He's the kind of God that gets inside of it, He's the kind of God that gets inside the family. In fact, He comes through the family. Christianity, friends, is not a mythologi- mythological religion. It's a historical religion, and by that I mean this: is that oftentimes we are oriented towards religion as symbols, as as you know, we think of these people as myths that have these truths for all time and place, but they're not really anchored anywhere in particular. But Christianity is utterly particular. It's utterly historical. If Jesus didn't actually live. If he didn't actually die, then Christianity is a total sham. You shouldn't believe it, because Christianity is a religion of history. Because God wants to save all of us, and you see this from the very beginning of the Bible, in chapter three, right after, right after Adam and Eve sin, and God is bringing down the curses and the judgment. He does say this one thing, and it's so important. It's the first. It's the very first picture and hope we have for salvation. And he says this to the woman. He says, I will put anemone between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise her head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the promise of an offspring, in other words. It's the promise of a child that salvation is focused. That someday... Eve, who never has a child before the fall, will, there will be a promised child that will come and deal with the problem of sin. Friends, family is always, from the very begin, beginning, been the carrier of covenant. It's always been the means by which God brings covenant and promise of salvation along throughout history. And I think this is so important because family starts with a Covenant. When you look at the scriptures and you see all of the major covenants like the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David, when you see great saving acts like God taking the people out of Israel or the people who are wandering in the desert later on, almost always you have, after those great saving acts, you have a covenant or or, a genealogy where it begins listing all the names. All the histories. Because, again, salvation is not something that just is up here. It saves real people and real families. And you think of the covenant with Abraham, which plays a really important role for Matthew's genealogy. And just I'll remind you of the story of Abraham. Abraham call, God calls Abraham out of a life of paganism, of idol worship. And he says to him this. He says, "Now." God says to Abraham, go from your country, take your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make for you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing to all the families on the earth. Friends, think about this. God takes this old man, (laughs) he's like 70, and a woman who's never been able to have kids, and he says, I'm gonna, build, I'm gonna save the entire universe, the entire cosmos, through this, these two old bodies that can't bear any fruit. You're gonna have a miracle baby someday, and this miracle baby will bless the entire creation. How particular is that? Think about the fact that during this time, God's only contact, the only contact with God and God's saving work is through this one couple, this one little family has been unable to have children and this points us really towards the meaning of the incarnation itself right you think about what christianity is all about right this one child this one man god has said i will save all things through this i will save all things through him through his flesh through his body that is very particular right This is how God works in the world. He works in humble means. He focuses on the particular. And now there are a lot of uh, applications that we might make and things to reflect on. But one I just want to draw your attention to is this. Now, most of you, you all are, have families. There's nobody in here doesn't have a family, whether you're connected with them or not. And the thing about families we all know is that families, one, um, are broken. <laughs> they are broken and they are messed up. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, if you know anything about the characters in that, there are liars, adulterers, murderers, those who have committed incest, one who actually sacrificed his son to another god. There are drunks. There are all kinds of unsavory and unquestionable people in Jesus' family line. And yet, and yet, God uses this family to save the world. See, families are imperfect, right? They're broken. But here's the other thing about families, that they're so ordinary. If there's anything about family life, it's this. And if you're a younger kid, you more so perhaps, it's so boring. My kids say to me, I'm bored. I'm like, good, welcome to life. (laughs) Families are routine. But part of the beauty of family is its routineness. It's the regularity that every morning, my wife and I get up at a certain time and we drink coffee and then, you know, we you know, go our separate ways and put the kids... I mean, there's just a regular routine to it, right? And that's part of the beauty, though. And that's where the formation and power is of family, right? It's all those little acts and those little rituals in life that we, we have intentionally made as families that shape us over time. And, and it's, there's nothing really all that exciting. Sometimes there's excitement. But friends, I want you to think the church is a family. And... I think a lot of times we are oriented towards God in a kind of sign and wonder spirituality. Like we're just always looking for excitement. We want God to show us himself in powerful and exciting and spectacular ways. I want my heart warmly, you know, warmed or strangely warmed as Wesley said. And sometimes we're seeking a kind of emotional kind of spirituality. But friends, the heart and soul of the Christian life is in a family which is the church. And sometimes it can be a little boring. And sometimes the sermons run a little long. But you know it's good for you. (laughs) (laughs) The birth of Jesus is a fulfillment of these genealogies in a couple ways. It's a fulfillment of the original purpose of family. He's the offspring that God promises to Eve. He's also the seed that Abraham will bring universal blessing to Abraham. He's, he's also the Davidic Messiah that will liberate his people from bondage. But, but there's another way, in, in a kind of deeper way, that Jesus is a fulfillment of, of family. And it's that, that he fulfills a very reality. Quite literally, he shares the flesh and blood of David, of Abraham, of Judah, of Mary. It's an incredible thing that God... In his glory has taken on human flesh. And it's the family. And it's interesting that when you you look in the Bible, you will not find any more genealogies past Luke's. There's no more genealogies in the Bible past the Gospel of Luke. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the genealogies, everything that we've been longing and waiting for. And he becomes the child, right? He's the child that we all want. He's a child that comes into all of our families and brings new life and healing to all the families of the earth. That's what Jesus is. In his particularity. Now the question is, and I very briefly I just want to reflect on this last point, which is the pattern of family. How does Jesus change the meaning of family? How does Jesus change the meaning of family? I mean, if you think about it, he he does have an unusual family situation. He comes into the world um, and is born, in a sense, to, at least on the outside, a very normal-looking, blue-collar Jewish family. And yet, Joseph is not his real father. (laughs) And Joseph almost leaves. He almost divorces Mary quietly because he suspects that Mary has been adulterous. But God and the Spirit intervenes, and the angel comes... And Joseph is able to understand. And so there's a sense in which Jesus affirms the family. He affirms the creational goodness of the family, just like he affirms traditional understanding of the marriage from Genesis 2. He doesn't transform it. And yet, he does introduce a new principle into it. Because Jesus becomes part of the family, not simply by human generation. He ha- there's a natural birth, and yet there's something supernatural, natural and supernatural, that brings him into this world. And Matthew says that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's through the Holy Spirit that Mary has, becomes pregnant. One of the ways that Jesus changes the meaning of the family is this, is that no longer is family just uh, bound by blood. That, that, that there's, it's not just this particular thing, that this is a universal family. That Jesus makes the possibility for a family that blesses all families. And that's what the church is. The church is a family, friends. And in a sense, all of us have our natural families and we belong to it, but the church reframes our understanding of family, that we belong together and opens us out such that others can come in and belong that don't have family, literally, that don't have mothers or fathers or brothers or sisters, who don't have spouses, who don't have the opportunity to be fruitful and multiply in the traditional ways that married people are able to have fruitfulness in their lives. It's the opportunity for people to come in and to experience fruitfulness and to be brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. That's the kind of family that Jesus creates a possibility to. And the way you belong to this family is not by just sharing the same blood or marrying in. The way you belong to this is by the Holy Spirit. New birth, baptism, born of the Spirit. Any of you sitting right here. Any of you. You might think you're outside or I could never, but you can belong. The door is open. Through the Spirit, through Jesus, He welcomes you. There is a place. There is a family. That word Emmanuel, which we find in this text, God with us. God with us is the ultimate promise of the Incarnation. Jesus (laughs) creates a family that will ultimately never be broken apart. He introduces us to a Father who will never forsake us, who will never abuse us, to siblings, brothers, and sisters. They will not desert us. But most of all, He gives Himself to us I mean, think about this, uh, this great mystery we call the Incarnation. God became flesh. God became flesh. God took on flesh and blood of a particular family. He has committed himself to us. He has made the ultimate promise. And he will never shed that humanity for all of eternity. What a great mystery that Jesus Christ and the heavens and the earth will still be Jesus of Nazareth. Friends, that is the beauty and the power of the Incarnation and God's promise to us. And that's what we worship and we long for during this season. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we thank you for this incredible mystery that in the person of Jesus, you became the God whose promises were not simply words spoken from heaven, but a word of promise given to us in the flesh, one that we can touch, one with flesh and blood, one that bleeds, one that becomes vulnerable to the forces and the evils of history. So God, we pray this morning that you would turn our hearts towards this child of promise. And may we put our hope and our longings in him. In his name we pray. Amen.